Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lecouture. Today, Alberta versus Ottawa. In just a few moments, we'll talk to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith about her controversial plan to override federal laws. Then, on-ice discrimination. Hockey Canada reports more than 900 cases of alleged discrimination just last season. We talked to a player who's trying to bench hate in hockey for good. And veterans offered assisted deaths. It is not the place of Veterans Affairs Canada who are there to support those people who stepped up to serve their country, to offer them uh, medical assistance in dying. My history, but you know. The Prime Minister promises change after another veteran, Paralympian, retired Corporal Kristin Gauthier, told a House committee that a medically assisted death was suggested as she pushed back on benefit delays. She joins, the, joins this show in just a few moments. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. A new dawn in Alberta, but is the province ready to usher in a new legal era? Premier Daniel Smith kicked off this session of the legislature with the Alberta Sovereignty in a United Canada Act. The UCP government says it will be used to push back on federal policy and laws deemed unconstitutional or harmful to the province. It could be applied to anything Alberta considers provincial jurisdiction, from firearms to natural resources and anything in between. The bill would give cabinet unilateral power to change legislation, something the government says would only be made at the direction of the Legislative Assembly. The act is already getting pushback from treaty chiefs, opposition MLAs, and even Alberta business groups. Yesterday in question period, Premier Smith said if members wanted to make amendments to approve the bill, her party would be happy to work with them. How open is Premier Smith to any opposition amendments? And with an election just around the corner in that province, how far is Premier Smith willing to go in a sovereignty showdown? Let's find out. Joining me right now is Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Welcome, Premier Smith. We appreciate you taking the time joining us. I wanted to get right into it here. And so you, you said that you're Thanks, open Mike. to changes to the Sovereignty Act. So was the bill that you tabled just a suggestion or a starting point? Well, no. I mean, the intention of the bill was to make sure that we were asserting our sovereign jurisdiction over all the areas that the Constitution defines, but most importantly, over the ability to develop our natural resources. So it's a good bill, uh, but I've seen, I've seen and heard that there's some concern that we're not as clear as we needed to be about the role of the, the legislature making sure that they get the final decision. The starting point for this legislation is that we have to get a motion in the legislature, and if there's some things that we need to, to change to be able to make it clear that the legislature has the ultimate authority, I'm prepared to do that. But we, we, the, the purpose of the bill is to make sure that Ottawa stays in its own lane. And that's the reason why we put it forward. So you just said there, and your Minister of Justice said yesterday, that some clarification is needed for Bill 1. So if in the last week that your government had to provide multiple clarifications, what does this say about the legislation and how well it was actually thought out? Well, the legislation is exactly what we need to do right now, because there's there's several areas in which Ottawa, I think, is violating what the intention of our, our founders was. And the intention of our founders, quite clearly, was that natural resource development 
and our conservation policies around it, as well as the export of it, should be provincial jurisdiction. The federal government has has two initiatives that they've talked about that I'm very concerned about that might be the first use of the Sovereignty Act if they proceed with it. One of them is a draconian emissions cap that is only going to apply to oil and natural gas. They want oil and natural gas emissions to be reduced 42% by 2030. And quite frankly, if you're trying to reduce emissions that quickly without the best available technology able to do it, 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 is, it acts as a de facto production cap. And in our view, that would be in violation of the Constitution. Same thing with fertilizer. They want to reduce their, uh, uh, fertilizer emissions 30% in the same period of time. And if you can't have the technology available to do it or a reasonable time frame, it is a de facto production cap. And I don't think that's on side with the way the, that our Constitution is supposed to work. Those would be the two areas that I'd be looking at using it. So I just wanted to dig into some of the nitty-gritty here because the Act proposes making changes to federal laws with motions rather than bills. So that's significantly less rigorous method of making laws in your province. You're not going to have any committees that will be struck. There will be no experts to be consulted. So are you basically just trying to ram through any changes that you want to make to federal laws? First of all, we're not talking about making changes to federal laws. What we're talking about is protecting provincial jurisdiction and provincial rights. And so this would act more well, as, with a all due respect, than as a sword. With all due respect, Premier, if I'm not mistaken, cha- you have said you want to make sure that they stay in their lane with federal laws. So what's the difference? Well, the two policies that I mentioned would be two in which I would say that we have to see how they would proceed on them. Those are the ones that I'm watching, and I'm hoping that they don't attempt to to try to proceed with those. Because what we would like to do is if they do pass laws that we clearly look at as unconstitutional, we would put up a shield and say, sorry, we don't think that this is constitutional. And they can take us to court to try to argue why it is they should intervene in our jurisdiction. The, The problem that we've had so far is that Alberta has sat back passively, maybe thinking that Ottawa would work collaboratively with us in developing our resources. And instead, they pass legislation and then force us to go through years and years and years worth of legal battles to get our rights back. We, we think we want to flip that onus because there are, are many ways in which the federal government is acting completely outside what I believe that the original intention of the Constitution was. We just want to put them on notice. Premier, even in their own jurisdiction, will you and try and override them in their own jurisdiction? So if it's in their jurisdiction, though, will you try and use this? If you look at the bill, it talks about asserting our rights under the Constitution. You have to look at the Constitutional Division of Power, Section 92 through 95, talk about the areas that are our constitutional right to develop legislation exclusively. That's the, that's the language of the Constitution. The problem with the federal government is every time they pass a law that violates our Constitution, they, it, the, the, I think the, generally they're treated as if they are a superior level of government. They are not. We are not a subordinate level of government to the federal government. And so this is why we have to make sure that they understand that they are perfectly free to pass legislation in their areas of jurisdiction. I have no interest in, for instance, telling them how to run national defense or telling them how to print currency or telling them how to run their passport offices. I would just ask that they have the same respect for our areas of jurisdiction, which include virtually all social programs, but most importantly, our natural resource development. So on that, because I know this is all about making sure that Alberta benefits better and that the economy goes better. That is your focus. The Prime Minister said it's his focus. The CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce says she doesn't see how the act contributes to economic growth. In fact, CEO Deborah Yeadlin actually said that it could drive investment out of Alberta. How do you respond to that? 
I can tell you there's a lot of chamber members calling me today telling me how much they disagree with her statement. They actually think that this is going to create certainty. The only thing that is creating business uncertainty in Alberta right now is federal intrusion, is federal overreach, is the federal government stepping into our area of jurisdiction and creating uncertainty. We have had multi-billion dollar projects that have been canceled. Energy East, Northern Gateway, the Tech Frontier Mine, Keystone XL, all of these types of projects, I believe, because the federal government has not created the kind of environment that is going to attract investment. And so this is why we have to defend the business interests of our of our people here in agriculture and in oil and gas in particular, but in other areas that the federal government is acting in a way that is driving away investment. We're trying to create investor certainty. And we could create investor certainty if the federal government respects our jurisdiction. That's all we're asking for. You say that you're trying to keep the federal government in their lane while staying in your lane. What about the Treaty Chiefs of Alberta who are rejecting this act? They say, the Treaty 8 chiefs say, quote, Alberta's sovereignty within the United Canada Act is just another unlawful attempt to continue the province's deliberate abuse and exploitation of the people's lands and territories and resources, end quote. Did you even consult any of the chiefs when you made this? The, the legislation very clearly says that it, nothing will abrogate or derogate from the rights of our Aboriginal peoples. In fact, the Section 35 of the, of the Charter makes it very clear that treaty rights are included in that. In, my, uh, in our throne speech, I talked about how we were going to have a, a new era of economic reconciliation with our First Peoples in developing economic corridors and economic partnerships. So I feel very strongly that uh, everything that we do here has to be in partnership with our First Nations. And uh, as we go through and they understand that this is really just about protecting their interests too, there's about a hundred different bands that also have oil and gas development. I, I think we'll be able to work in partnership to push back against Ottawa. Premier Smith, my last question for you. The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, says he doesn't want to pick a fight with Alberta. Are you trying to pick a fight with him with this act? You know, I've been pleased to see the impact of us talking about this type of approach because I noticed at COP27 when the final communique went to be signed, Stephen Guibault didn't sign it. And the reason why he didn't is he said it would be a violation of how our country works, that natural resources are provincial jurisdiction. If he signed it, he would face a legal challenge from the provinces that he probably would not win. So that, to me, I, I, I think is a, an affirmation of the kind of approach that we're taking. And if we can have a constructive relationship about how we meet international goals together with LNG export, focusing on carbon technology, making sure that we develop out our hydrogen economy, I think we'll be able to work in partnership with our federal government. That would be my first choice. And so I'm hoping that, that this starts a new constructive relationship with Ottawa. So is that not a good start, though, seeing that? Like, why would you need this act if, if you're even admitting that Stephen Gilbeau says that they were staying in their lane? Nothing moves unless it's pushed. I can tell you it hasn't been the case. Uh, Rachel Notley tried to get social license, and instead, of, uh, after putting in a carbon tax and uh, putting a cap on our emissions and phasing out coal, instead all we got was draconian legislation that interfered in our jurisdiction. Uh, Jason Kenney tried to do the same thing in getting a collaborative partnership to export LNG off the coast of Quebec. They cancelled LNG projects and started confiscating the oil and gas leases of our businesses. Uh, these are the kind of reactions that we've seen when we've tried to act collaboratively in the past. Uh, there's going to be a change of heart on the federal government. I look forward to it. But uh, make no mistake, the only reason they're talking that way is because we are asserting our rights and we're going to continue doing that. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Power Play today. We appreciate this. 
You bet. My pleasure. To another big story we're following today, a report from Hockey Canada says the organization recorded over 900 cases of discrimination on the ice in the 2021-22 season. That includes verbal taunts, insults, and intimidation across all ages and all levels. Here's the breakdown. 512 penalties for discrimination and 415 investigation into allegations. 61% of the incidents involved gender identity or sexual orientation. 18% included race and 11% were on disability in the incidents that led to discrimination. Over half of those incidents happen amongst players under the age of 18. So what does the information tell us about the current culture on the ice? And will it take a deep penalty on discrimination? Will it take, what will it take to keep discrimination in the penalty box? Let's find out. Joining me now is Hockey for Youth Executive Director and Founder Moisine Hashem. Uh, Hockey for Youth works to increase social inclusion for newcomers to youth uh, hockey through free ice time. Welcome, Mo. We appreciate you taking the time. I wanted to start with getting your reaction to this report. What is the most concerning to you? Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me on. I think this is deeply troubling when you think about the game of hockey. Why are kids playing hockey? They're playing for the idea of, you know, having fun out on the ice. And a report like this really tells uh, newcomers, uh, people from the BIPOC community, that hockey's not a place where you want to put your kids. Um, you know, the, the, the statistics that you outlined are troubling. If we're talking about upwards of 80% of the discrimination that's happening uh, based around race and sexual orientation, that's really problematic. It's really troubling. And then when you break down the numbers, uh, you know, I looked at the report this morning, 72% of these incidents have occurred in the U18 category all the way down to U9. These are kids and teenagers who are actively engaging in discrimination through the sport of hockey. It's deeply troubling for the game uh, at every level. Um, and, and there's got to be some, some type of consequence and there's got to be some things that have to change uh, in hockey culture because this is not how you attract uh, young people into the game of hockey. Hockey Canada has been under the spotlight of late. What does Hockey Canada need to do with this data right now? Yeah, I think there's a lot that they can do, Mike. Um, you know, for, for myself and my charitable foundation that I started in 2015, uh, we've worked with kids from 38 different countries of origin, including Syria and Jamaica and Mexico, uh, just to name a few. Uh, we've opened the doors to the game. We've basically said the only barrier should be the boards. And so my message to Hockey Canada and a lot of the minor hockey community is we got to get back to the basics. We need to make sure that kids are having fun out on the ice. If you look at where a lot of these um, issues came from, uh, 70% of these, these situations have occurred in the competitive stream. Well, what can we do better in the competitive stream? What can we do better in the minor hockey areas? I think a lot of our focus and attention needs to be on education it's really important to sit down, not only with parents and referees, uh, but the kids that are in hockey. We need to continue to educate and make sure that they understand that these uh, types of uh, use of language 
uh, has deep impact on a lot of people. And remember, outside of the hockey arena, when you're working with others, when you're trying to collaborate with others, you're dealing with people from various different backgrounds in life. And so what we want to teach on the ice should be reflective of what we want to teach off the ice when you're inside your school, when you're inside your office. Um, I was shocked to see that one of the outcomes was only 13% of the, the people that perpetrated these incidents were going through some type of education. Why is it not 100%? And in fact, at the beginning of the season, as I keep reiterating, there should be mandatory education every year. It doesn't matter if you've taken one course, you need to continue to educate yourself to make sure that you're not going to put yourself in a position where you're using this type of language out on the ice that's detrimental to a lot of people. Mozine Hysham, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this tonight. Thanks very much, Mike. Coming up, disturbing testimony from a veteran and a former Paralympian. In her fight for a wheelchair ramp, retired Corporal Christine Gautier tells MPs at the Department of Affairs that the Veterans Affairs offered her the opportunity for medically assisted death. She tells us her story next on Power Play. We are following up with investigations. We are changing protocols to ensure what should seem obvious to all of us, that it is not the place of Veterans Affairs Canada who are there to support those people who stepped up to serve their country, to offer them uh, medical assistance in dying as uh, a matter of course. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressing allegations that some veterans were offered medical assistance in dying as they wait for benefits. Yesterday, retired Corporal Christine Gautier told the Committee of MPs that she was offered the opportunity for a medically assisted death by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Retired Corporal Gautier, who's also a former Paralympian, says she's been fighting for years for a wheelchair ramp for her home. Government says the veteran service agent that has offered the made option has been suspended and is being referred to the RCMP. So how does retired Corporal Gautier feel about her ordeal? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired Corporal Christine Gautier. She also competed for Canada at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympics and the Evictus Games that same year. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I wanted to talk to you about your testimony yesterday at the House of Commons Veterans Affairs Committee. You described your five-year fight that you've had for a wheelchair ramp at your home, but it was in that same call that you were describing. Uh, you talked about this shocking response that somebody from Veterans Affairs Canada gave to you. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, actually, I, I even myself just got acknowledge of the, the investigation ongoing from the with the RCMP and this quote from Minister McCauley about being singled out event in that same week when I was contacted from Monday um, to to appear to that committee for another subject and uh, one of the testimonies had mentioned uh, the right uh, the, this this situation about being singled out and I had to raise my hand and said, well, I'm sorry, but I was approached with this as well. So it just occurred one time during a call where I was stating how 
the despair of the situation and the incapacitating of my condition always just deteriorating. It was just getting too much and that unbearable. And the person in fact mentioned at that point, well, you know that we can assist you with uh, assisted dying now if you'd like. And I was just shocked because it was like, are you serious? Like that easy, you're going to be helping me to die, but you won't help me to live. So, and from, I'm trying to go back to all my notes because I always manuscript every call because yes, obviously that was in a call conversation. It was not written from their part. So I always transcript everything in Canada books, like I have here, mental multiple copies of them. And I just need to go back to my note and see when the first talk of that was made. I know I have found a, a script note of mine right. from 2019. And from there on, and in 2021, July 2021, I have sent a letter to, to Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister McCauley and Minister of Defense, pretty much to everywhere, everyone I could think of, uh, stating how, again, still there was nothing made in my case, and that I stated that in the letter, how unridiculously how you are willing to help me die but not live. And, of course, the answer from uh, the office of Minister Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, was just, um, well, uh, we're sorry you're, you're, feel, you're, you're wrong through that, we see that you have contacted the Minister uh, of Defense, uh, Minister Defense and Minister uh, of Veterans Affairs, and I'm confident they're going to take action. And the response from Minister uh, McCauley was just uh, ignoring it and stating me the rules and regulation of uh, Veterans Affairs. Yeah. Do you know who made that suggestion to you, though, on the phone? Was it a caseworker? Was it a what a Service Canada agent? Who was it? Yeah, it was a it was a ACC agent. I like I say I. I don't want to go through right now because I'm hoping it's going to have it was going to percuse actions. Um, I have for sure it, the script will be in my notes. I, I know for a fact as well that I have mentioned that to my uh, psychologist, and uh, I will uh, check back with her as well next time we meet next week mm -hmm. for uh, how I can pr procure my uh, her notes because I know it's going to be in her notes as well. I just wanted to ask you, when you were told that over the phone, how did it make you feel? I was completely shocked and in despair. Again, it was like, you are just, like I say, it's been, it's not new, unfortunately, to my, to my situation. It is remotely just what they're doing, exhausting us to the point of no return. And just... So they cut in, in the budgeting or, or the, the use of equipment we have, subtracting constantly to, to outsiders. So we just become in, in despair or they will just drug us up in medication and pot, anything just to shut us up and be quiet. But it's completely unreasonable and inhuman to put somebody through this. And to tell them something as easily as, you know, if you're that tired of it and you're just in that despair, we can help you die. Yeah, today the I'm prime... In, I'm in, seriously, I'm, I said, as complicated as my condition is, yes, I have multiple injuries. Uh, I have 137% in disability with the DVA rate at this point. As I mentioned to the committee yesterday, none of all my condition has even yet been treated accordingly to the chart and the way ACC, uh, DVA works. Um, 
I will not be receiving any more amount of money. Right now, what I need is the equipment. It took 18 years to receive a second set of wheels for my wheelchair. Does anybody have just one pair of shoes? I mean, I literally need wheelchairs, wheels to go outside in the rain and snow. And it took 18 years for this to come. I cannot keep crawling down like a worm to get in and out of my house. But I'm clearly not either a, a palliative, I'm sorry, I don't know the term in English, but I am clearly not palliative either. You know, different. You, you cannot just start submitting and offering right to die to people who are not at that state. Yeah, I was going to say to you, today Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that the government is investigating your case and the others of people who were also offered made because apparently there have been others. He also said this, quote, it is not the place for Veterans Affairs Canada who are there to support the people who stepped up to serve this country, to offer them medical assistance in dying as a matter of course. So what do you think of the Prime Minister's response? <laughs> of course it's not their right and their position to do. Of course not. Uh, nobody should. It should be just a de decision made with a doctor, not not a, a readaptation specialist that they pretend they're they're putting together now to to serve us. But this is the only have resources through. So where does he think that the help, support, and information gets to us? Retired Corporal Christian Gauthier, thank you so much, not only for sharing your story with us, but for your service to this country. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Just to clarify, the government has said that an, an agent involved in suggested medically assisted deaths is no longer working with veterans. However, we do not know if that agent was connected to retired Corporal Gauthier's case. Here is some other news you need to know. In November, Statistics Canada is reporting that the country saw a small boost on the job front. Canada gained a modest 10,000 jobs, pushing the unemployment rate down slightly to 5.1%. Employment rose in the services sector, but it fell in industries including construction. Wages increased 5.6% compared to a year ago. U.S. prosecutors have asked the judge to dismiss charges, including bank fraud, against Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Meng was struck a deal last year for the charges against her to be dismissed on December 1st of this year. That's exactly four years to the day she was arrested in Canada on a U.S. warrant. You'll recall shortly after her arrest, two Canadians in China, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, were arrested and detained in what the Canadian government viewed as arbitrary retaliation. Today's dismissal was part of a deferred prosecution deal that she signed last year. Right after that deal, Spavor and Kovrig were freed from China. Canada has announced new sanctions against four Iranian officials and five entities. In a tweet today, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie wrote, Canada will not stand idly by while the Iranian regime's human resources, human rights violations increase in scope and intensity against Iranian people. Still to come, how should the federal government respond to Alberta's Sovereignty Act? Our Friday panel of strategists will dig in next here on Power Play.
on this show, you heard Alberta Premier Daniel Smith defending her Sovereignty Act. Prime Minister Trudeau says he's not looking for a fight with Alberta over this controversial act, but he added his government is not taking anything off the table either. So as Alberta looks to flex its muscles within the Federation and neighboring Saskatchewan is already introducing its own bill, which seeks to reassert its jurisdiction over natural resources and to establish a new tribunal to ass uh, assess the economic repercussions of federal policies, how should the federal government respond to these power plays from the provinces? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. We've got Greg McEachern. He's from Proof Strategies. He leans liberal. We've Gary Keller from Strategy Corp. He has a conservative perspective. And the national director of the NDP, Anne McGrath, he joins us in studio as well. Thank you all. Greg, the prime minister says he doesn't want to fight with Alberta, uh, but he does have this tough talk with Alberta. Does this reassure concerned Albertans? Concern from what point of view? I mean, I saw, you know, um, and, and we talked about this, I think, earlier in the fall, that there are business groups in Alberta that are concerned about the impact of picking a fight with the federal government. And we've done many, many panels the, over the years that no province can go wrong with uh, picking a fight with the feds. And we also have perhaps kind of a weak opposition uh, federally and some of the premiers think that it's their job to be leader of the opposition. So I think the prime minister is correct in, in not taking the bait here because why get in the way um, you know, of a lemming that's going to throw their political party off, off a cliff. Within 24 hours of this act, there was, uh, you know, corrections, amendments, and was, I, amendments, I wish, you know, that hasn't even mm -hmm. been introduced. Um, you know, about two weeks ago, Premier Smith did a, a, a announcement or a, 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 to, to the province. And one of the things that she said at the end, I found really curious. I've, you know, I've been done a ton of media over the years, so, um, you know, I took positions, but now I've evolved, so please don't listen to me before. And my response to that would be, okay, but why would we believe you now? Mm -hmm. Are you going to just reverse this in a month? I, you know, I just say this, she's wanted to be prime premier for more than a decade, and she just doesn't seem to be ready for it. Mm -hmm. Gary, I wanted to ask you, with this Sovereignty Act, is Premier Smith now leading this sort of resistance 2.0? I mean, we saw that it didn't really work when there was a majority of conservative premiers out there, and the resistance had Brian Pallister, Andrew Scheer, Jason Kenney. Why do you think this is different now? Well, I think her, her goal was to get elected and to win the UCP leadership race. And she put the Alberta Sovereignty Act, as it was known back in the time, as the sort of hallmark of, of her campaign platform. And from a campaign strategy, it was, it was quite smart because it forced all the other candidates to respond to her. But now she's like the proverbial dog has caught the car. She's had to bring forward this piece of legislation. And it looks a lot different than what had been originally proposed, uh, you know, back in the day when she was, you know, thinking about running for the leadership. So we have a bill now. It's been tabled. Uh, Greg is right. It's going to go through some amendments. The government said they're, they're open to some amendments um, and to perhaps make it even more palatable uh, to Albertans and to ease concerns of the business community. But as, as Greg previously said, I think Justin Trudeau had the right response. Let's wait and see. The, you know, Dominic LeBlanc was out saying there are amendments to come. Um, and, you know, I think for Pierre Polyev, in terms of the, that, that relationship, uh, federal opposition party and, and premiers, you know, he has to be careful because I think there's other premiers out there, conservative premiers, who have misgivings about the Daniel Smith's Alberta Sovereignty Act. We saw Heather Stephenson react kind of negatively to one approach 
that uh, that Daniel Smith had brought forward about a, a project in, in Manitoba. So uh, she may not even reflect the will of your, your Doug Forrest, your Heather Stephenson. So I don't see her as the leader of the resistance 2.0. And But what does it say about a bill when it's introduced and then afterwards there's clarification saying you're open to amendments? I mean, is this something that the NDP in Alberta now goes, this is perfect, we can start the campaign ads and let's get going? Yeah, the whole point of this bill is to pick a fight with Ottawa. That's what that bill is about. So by not giving her that fight, I think it makes sense to me to mm-hmm. not give her the fight. The fight is in Alberta and it is between her and Rachel Notley. She has put forward her centerpiece bill. This is Bill 1, uh, something that most Albertans are not that preoccupied with. Most Albertans are preoccupied with the state of the health care system. They're preoccupied with the cost of living and affordability. They're preoccupied with education. Those are the things that Rachel Notley is running on. Those are the things she's talking about. That's what Albertans care about. So from a strategic point of view, to make your Bill 1 something that is not a big concern for, uh, for the citizens of Alberta, and basically it's so, it's so flagrant in its attempt to engage in a, in, a, in a war with Ottawa when really the fight is in Alberta for who, who basically who Albertans will trust to bring, you know, to, 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 uh, to create a resilient economy, mm-hmm. to protect health care and education. So is it a gift for Rachel Notley? And, and I'm assuming the people that you speak to in the uh, Alberta NDP? Well, I watch her and I think, yeah, keep going, Danielle. <laughs> keep <laughs> yeah. going. Just, just you keep... know, like introduce this bill, say you're going to amend it. The bill is badly written. I actually felt kind of sorry for the people in the public service that had to do it because they probably know that it's not very good. And you can tell that it's not very good because mm. they would have had big reservations, I'm sure, about yeah. doing it. And apparently it's not even gripping reading because some of her ministers appear not to have read it yeah. uh, and yeah. were asked to comment yeah. on it. So it's, yeah. it doesn't seem like you're destined for success when you're, this is so ill-planned. It looks yeah. like a gong show. It looks like her first week, uh, you know, her first kind of foray into the legislature bit of a gong show. Yeah, needs, needs a lot of corrections on it, apparently. But Gary, I want to ask you about um, uh, Pierre Polyev's response to it. Uh, in an interview that he did, he did say that, look, this wouldn't be necessary if I'm prime minister because relations with the premiers will be so good. What do you think about that? Wow, that's a, a typical response that you're going to have when you're an opposition leader and you want to be prime minister. I mean, Justin Trudeau said the exact same thing when he was leader of the Liberal Party campaigning to be prime minister. You know, I don't think Pierre Polyev wants any part of this fight because it's not just a fight about Daniel Smith and Rachel Notley. They want to pick a fight with Ottawa. And I think Justin Trudeau's response is absolutely right. Like, oh, we'll wait and see. We're not here to pick fights with anybody. You know, this is also a very short-term process in the sense that there's an election in Maine, right? Smith wants a fight with Rachel Notley. She wants a fight with Justin Trudeau. Uh, People are going to go out of their way to avoid that. And, uh, you know, Pierre Polyev doesn't really want to get into this fight either. So I'm not surprised that he took that position. Yeah, the big, the big issue with the premiers is health care. Yeah. Like if, some, if, 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 if a leader wants to really engage with premiers and get something done, it's health care. And that's something I think a lot of Canadians are worried about as well. Yeah. Anne McGrath, Greg McEachran, Gary Keller, thank you all for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you again. Coming up, the Parti Québécois refused to swear an oath to King Charles III, so they refused entry into the National Assembly. So how does the PQ plan to still work for their constituents while not being allowed into the legislature? We'll speak to PQ leader Paul St-Pierre Plamondon next on PowerPlay.
no seat. That was the message from the sergeant-at-arms at Quebec's National Assembly this week when members of the Parti Québécois tried to enter the legislative chamber. Three MNAs were actually barred from the room because they have refused to swear the mandatory oath to King Charles III to take the seat in the National Assembly. Elected members must swear one oath to monarch and another to Quebec people. Premier François Legault says he doesn't like swearing an oath to the head of state, but he did it because it's the rule. So how does the PQ leader feel all about, about all this? Well, let's ask him. Joining me right now is Parti Québécois leader Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon. Welcome. Bienvenue to Power Play. Yesterday, you. you made your point in a very respectful way. But I, I wanted to know how it felt to be denied entry into a place that you've been elected to serve in. It's disappointing. <laughs> I, I gave uh, the evidence of my election to the sergeant of arms, and I also gave my the confirmation that I actually did swear an oath to the people of Quebec and its constitution. And so um, many law professors uh, indicated that based on that, I could or should be allowed in the uh, Salon Bleu. Now, at the same time, we yes, we had the disappointment, but we also had all parties agree that that needs to change, and that will change very soon, uh, next week, actually. So there are many ways to uh, achieve change. I think we need to be perseverant and respectful of the institution, and it's uh, very likely that next week we will uh, get rid of that oath to the King of England, that we will be allowed uh, allowed to uh, to sit. So just just to be clear, you're saying that this oath to the King of England, to King Charles III, will be abolished by next week? That's what the motion says. All parties in the House agreed on a motion that says that as soon as possible, the oath will be repelled by a law and that that law should be um, adopted so as to... Um, permit those who made only one oath to the people of Quebec to admit them in the house. That's what the motion said. And it's in writing. I, I just want to ask you something that may seem like a technicality, but uh, now you refuse to swear this oath to the king. However, in the last session, two of your MNAs who were reelected, um, you have Joël Arsenault and Pascal Berroubet, did swear an oath to the queen. So what was different in this case? Well, actually, it, it all started in the second debate of Radio Canada. So the question asked at the very end of the debate is, what do you think about the oath? And I responded the same answer that I did uh, in, over the years. I do not intend to swear that oath, and I'm really against it because I find it anti-democratic. And um, I just maintain my position. It just happens that that's what I said, and that's what I actually do. And uh, so many legal experts started writing on how that could be repelled. And there are many ways to get that result. And uh, I think there's a, a share of uh, consistency and perseverance to change something that hasn't changed over decades, over centuries, actually. So uh, hopefully we can uh, uh, achieve that result. And I hope for the people that elected you, you will finally get your seat so that you can continue to fight for them. Parti Québécois leader Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
One last break on power play. When we return from the Sovereignty Act to the Indo-Pacific strategy, which one of those will get a political play or misplay of the week? Stay tuned. That segment is next. A damning report breaks down the derailment of a capital city transit system and Canada crafts a plan to reset its economic ties in the Indo-Pacific. So in this week of politics, who bagged the plays and misplays? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me now are CTV News senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Aiello. We also have freelance journalist and investigative reporter Justin Ling and from Earnscliffe Strategies, Greg Weston, nice to see all of you. Rachel, you've got a misplate to someone who was just on our show at the top of the show, Danielle Smith. Tell yeah. me about it. Uh, so Danielle Smith and her government is getting my misplay this week for how they've rolled out this Sovereignty Act. You know, the, the phrase that was rattling around in my brain all week was, if you're explaining, you're losing. Mm-hmm. Very clearly out of the gate, everyone was able to point to gaps in the legislation, and they've already come out and suggested that amendments might be needed. Uh, I'll leave it to the constitutional experts to get at some of the concerns about the bill that way. But for me, the most galling, I think actually almost entertaining to watch was how they tried to spin that somehow debate in the legislature on a motion is at all equivalent to a legislative process with a bill that moves through. Uh, And so I obviously think that that is something that's going to have to get revisited. I'm just thinking as well, imagine if Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tried to put through legislation that would mean that they didn't have to (laughs) go through the process and let cabinet unilaterally do things. I imagine Danielle would have a lot to say about that. Um, So I just think how this kind of played out this week and the fact that they're already clear that the way this was drafted was just not on. uh, It was definitely misplay worthy. Justin, could we call it clunky at the way it was rolled out? Clunky? Try kooky. I mean, you know, Danielle (laughs) Smith isn't terribly interested about how government works, and she has been for a long time. I mean, you know, a, a few months ago, I posted a whole bunch of comments she had made to her locals fan page. Um, and, and in there, she suggests that to get around vaccine mandates at the border, that maybe Alberta will just create its own border. Maybe there will be a, a sort of air bridge between freedom-loving Florida and Alberta that will just be exempt from Canadian border security, from Canadian immigration laws. She doesn't care how the thing works. All she wants to do is break things. And and that's exactly what we're seeing with this act. So these things are not bugs. They are features. Greg, she's going into an election in the spring. Is this a big gamble for her heading into that? Well, sure it is. It's one thing to um, roll out, uh, as Justin says, cookie stuff to appeal to uh, a a particular group of of your own Mm -hmm. uh, supporters uh, to win a to win win a leadership. And that's what this was all about. This was this was, you know, red meat to the to the base. It's another to go to to the whole population of Alberta, at which point she actually has to uh, appear as a reasonable, sensible leader, uh, yeah. is this someone you can you can trust to to carry the province forward? Uh, it's hard to imagine that there are a majority of of Albertans who get up in the morning and say, "Gee, I I think we should you know start uh, uh, let's get rid of the rule of law because that's kind of inconvenient." Yeah. And and uh, yeah, and Ottawa, boy, we just we hate the rest of this. Yeah, but, e- you know. easy to hate Ottawa. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Justin, you've got a misplay from Canada's foreign affairs minister. Let's have a look at this before we come back to you. 
The goal is to increase the diplomatic capacity, Dylan, because we believe that Canada needs to step up its game in the region. We're giving, uh, we're putting $100 million dollars uh, to it. It is the first uh, biggest investment in uh, diplomacy in years. Justin, talk to me about this uh, play from Melanie Jolie. She, she later on goes on to call it one of the biggest uh, foreign policy resets in Canada that we've seen in decades. Of course, I, I think foreign, uh, former Foreign Minister uh, Stéphane Dion would take offense to that because his, of course, his responsible conviction uh, foreign policy was supposed to have been the biggest reset in decades when it happened about five years ago. But nevertheless, you know, Melanie Jolie this week, uh, you know, touted this this huge reset that was going to really put Canada on the map when it comes to the Indo-Pacific region. It would make Canada a big player, not just in uh, the, the the sort of quest to, to con uh, constrain China's ambition in the region, but also would make it a valuable partner for Japan and India and Pakistan and everywhere in between. And we've seen this report now. We've seen this this new policy. And there's just not much to it. There's a couple of good things. There are things in here that will protect us against Chinese espionage. There are a couple of things in here that will boost Canada's manufacturing sector, make sure our resources stay in Canadian hands. There's some good stuff. That should have been done five years ago. We are so behind the ball right now. The Canadian government has no coherent foreign policy when it comes to the Indo-Pacific region. Nothing in this document actually lays out what we're going to do about China beyond sailing a couple more ships of the uh, South China Sea. This is not a policy, and it comes many years too late. This government doesn't know which way it's going in, in, in most of the world, let alone the Indo-Pacific. Instead of getting the two of you guys to weigh in, I think Justin said a lot for everybody here. Greg, we're going to go to your play on the LRT investigation. Yeah, I, my, my play goes to uh, uh, Justice William Horgan, who uh, presided over a, a lengthy uh, public inquiry into what everybody in Ottawa knows is probably one of the biggest fiascos in, in uh, uh, infrastructure history in this country. Um, if it weren't so serious, it'd almost be a joke that's, mm -hmm. that, that so many things have gone gone wrong with this. And I'm giving him the play because it's uh, this is not a local story. This is a national story. Canadian taxpayers, by the time this thing is finished, the next phase will have poured two billion dollars into this thing. And uh, uh, Justice Horgan really, really nails a lot of of everybody from the mayor to the public servants to the people who are building this thing. Uh, it's an embarrassment, uh, and it's something that, that will impact, it will affect um, every taxpayer in this country. Well said, Greg. We're going to have to leave it there. We have had such a packed show, but I want to thank everybody joining me here today, Rachel Aiello, Justin Ling, Greg Weston. Have yourselves a great weekend. That is your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We'll be back here on Monday. Until then... Have a great weekend, everyone.